0: they want to go to a place where they will be understood you know back in the 1990s we didn't talk about things like cultural competence or cultural safety but that's really what it's that about was what it
1: was yeah it's
0: going yeah. to a place where people know who you are and understand your issues without you always having to start way back you know from the beginning and your parents beginning and your grandparents
2: Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School.
3: And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: And Dana's back! I'm back! had a lovely week off. I know that you would have
3: rather that it was a month in Greece, however.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, who wouldn't opt for that? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? (laughs) We're
3: very happy to have you back, Dana.
2: Thank you. I'm particularly excited to be uh, bringing you this podcast this week because, Julie, you had a fantastic conversation with Jonathan Rudin, who is the Director of Aboriginal Legal Services. That's
3: right. And Jonathan Rudin is someone whose name and whose work I've heard about for some time, but this was my very first conversation with him, and it was great. He is, as you say, the Director of Aboriginal Legal Services. And in the podcast, he's going to talk about how that uh, program got set up. And it's expansion because it's grown from something very, very tiny when he first joined in 1990 on a one-month contract (laughs) to what it is today, where there's a whole range of services and programs. And to give you a little bit more background about Jonathan, he's an Osgoode graduate. He did both his law degree and his master's degree at Osgoode. And the other thing that I found out about him through a little bit of sleuthing, not much, is that he is a musician. He is a mandolin player and plays with a band and we might just post a link to a youtube video on the podcast (laughs) page showing you jonathan with this other hat on so let's go ahead and listen to our conversation
1: Thank you very much indeed for being willing to do this, and I'd like to begin by asking you to explain for our listeners the needs that Aboriginal Legal Services would first establish to meet. And I think in particular, would you explain why the needs that Aboriginal Legal Services meets for the Indigenous community are not met in other clinics that might do similar kinds of legal work? but are not designed or set up specifically for Indigenous clients.
0: Sure. So Aboriginal Legal Services was set up in Toronto originally in 1990, and it was set up to be uh, as much of a one-stop shop as it could be for Aboriginal people in conflict with the law. And so the vision of the organization was that it would deal with people's legal issues in court as well as working on uh, providing support for people going through the court system and, and developing new initiatives. That was the vision from the beginning. And one of the questions that was raised when the organization was being set up, and I was hired to help set it up, was specifically this question about why do we need a separate organization to provide services like assistance with landlord-tenant or social right. assistance to Indigenous people when there are a lot of legal clinics in Toronto that are located where there are people with low income. So presumably if there's an Indigenous low-income person there, they would go to the clinic. So why do we need an Indigenous-specific clinic? Uh, we did a couple of things. First, uh, you know, we called the legal clinics that we in areas where we knew there were significant indigenous populations and said how many of your clients are indigenous and they mm. said uh, We don't think we have any
1: or Hardly oh, right. any. Yeah.
0: And then we spoke to some of our board members, you know, who were indigenous and came to the city I remember speaking to one and said, you know, if you had a problem with your landlord uh, Would you go when you came to the city before you got a job and got settled? Would you have gone to a legal clinic and right. he said no because for him, all these institutions are all part of the same system. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so while that's difficult in some ways for people who are, you know, advocates for tenants and advocates for people on social assistance, it's hard for them probably to hear that they're seen as part of the same system. That's very much a reality for Indigenous people. There's the world of Indigenous service providers and organizations that are there for indigenous people and there's the rest of the system. And that's not a simplistic view of the world. I think that's quite a sophisticated view and reflects people's lived experiences. And so that's one of the really important reasons that Aboriginal Legal Services was formed. For most of our clients, when they come into a non-indigenous organization, they don't feel comfortable they don't feel that people understand their issues they either have to explain a whole bunch of things all the time or they just don't feel comfortable talking about issues they don't feel so they they don't trust that process and so there is this sense that they want to go to a place where where they'll be understood you know you know back in the 1990s we didn't talk about things like cultural competence or cultural safety But that's really what it's about. That was what it
1: was, yeah. It's
0: going to a place where people know who you are and understand your issues without you always having to start way back, you know, from the beginning and your parents' beginning and your grandparents'.
1: What's so interesting about this is, of course, often what happens when services are being set up for a group that feels otherwise excluded or marginalized, they're being set up by a more powerful group of people they're being set up by folks who are not necessarily part of that powerless community, but by people who, like yourself, have the the means to offer and develop these kinds of services. Now, I know that one of the things that's very important for you, and I think this is a very interesting part of your work, is to ensure that the work that you do is work that genuinely reflects the needs of the Indigenous community. It's not just what, you know, other folks think might be good for them. So can you talk a little bit about how you make sure that you remain constantly connected? And as you put it in your mission statement, culturally based and community controlled.
0: We learn from our clients and from our volunteers, that's who directs where we go. Mm. So we have a criminal diversion program that's called the community council program. We have an alternative dispute resolution program for child welfare called Nanang, which is Ojibwe for North Star. And those are both volunteer-driven programs. And when we say a program is volunteer-driven, what that means is we let they give the direction. Right. Any important questions, we go to our volunteers or we go to elders and we get direction. Mm-hmm. And if you go to someone to get direction, what, what do you think we should do? And they say we should do X and we go, thank you, we're going to do Y. Right. Like if you're, right. if you're okay. serious about it, then you, you have to ask people, here's what I want to know from you and I, I'm going to do this.
1: I personally have to say I find that very inspiring because I think that one of the things we have not done very well, we still don't do very well in the justice system, is talk to the people who we're actually trying to build services for. And obviously that's part of what we're trying to do at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. So, Jonathan, can I move you on to talk a bit about... Uh, one of the things that I know ALS is really well known for, and I think has become increasingly part of your work, and people might associate with you, which is the Gladue reports coming out of the Gladue principle. And I and I, I think we just need to kind of set the stage here for people to make sure that they know what we're speaking of here. This is response to the fact that, of course, Aboriginal people are. Grotesquely overrepresented in Canada's penal system, the Criminal Code has established a requirement that in sentencing, and it could be in sentencing any offender, but in particular in relation to Aboriginal persons, that any decision should consider the circumstances of that person's life and when that is in relation to an Aboriginal person. That means the economic and the social and the political impact on them of colonialism, so that there is bigger context to considering whether incarceration in any one given case is really the appropriate outcome.
0: Yes, you've now summarized government legislation and 15 years of litigation in four (laughs) sentences. Um, I'm sure you could do it better. But tell
1: me about how ALS does this work, because this obviously is one of the things that you do that makes a real difference to individual people's
0: lives. Sure. So to understand this... um, we, the reason it's called the Gladue Principles and the reason they call called Gladue Reports is because in 1999 the Supreme Court of Canada issued a decision in a case called Gladue, named after the woman who was the offender who brought the case to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and that was the case that established those points that you made so we call those the GLADU Principles called the GLADU case, we call it a Gladue Report in part because we want to show that this is, we're not doing something special for Indigenous people. This is what the Supreme Court said should happen. But what the court really said was the sensing of, it, of Aboriginal people needs to be done differently. It needs to consider those things that you talked about, the impact of mm. colonialism, etc. But it never said how that was supposed to be done. Right. And I, the, sort of like the court said, you should do things differently and then assume somehow that <laughs> Everyone would do things differently. there's so, no mechanism
1: to ensure that people really would have their circumstances in light of the voodoo factor. Exactly. So you a exactly. mechanism for that.
0: Right. Right. And so we were working with the courts in Toronto. One of the judges, Patrick Shepherd, thought mm. in in response to trying to deal with the voodoo decision, uh, because not much was happening initially, and so we, starting in in 2000, he thought maybe we should set up a court to deal with Indigenous people in Toronto, and we thought it was a great idea. And we worked with the court to help set up this thing that we now call a Gludu court in Toronto. But we realized that there was something missing in the planning, which was where are judges going to get the information? The information. right? And we thought, well, why don't we do a report why don't we do something in writing judges like things in writing why don't we do something in writing that tells the story of the person who's coming before the court and so we came up with this idea of doing that and calling them to do reports so that's really what we did we just said hey let's try and do something and we did it and we didn't have any funding for this really but we figured well if it works and it's effective people will see the value in it and it will be supported and that's in fact what's happened and so, so what the report-
1: how many do you yeah. do a year roughly now can you give me a sense of the uh, volume so we year?
0: probably this year we'll probably do we will do more than 500. wow that's a lot and that's could a lot. you
1: give me i think it would really help people who are listening to this to have an actual concrete example is it possible obviously without identification to use it? give us an
0: example. Sure. Let me say first that what these reports do is they tell the story of the person's life, uh, and they tell that story from, in the words of the people we interview, so we try and interview as many people as possible. Uh, We interview the, the client, we interview their parents, we interview people they know, and we get a variety of perspectives because no one has one perspective, and we reflect those all in the report. Again, in people's own words, we also tell someone's story as much as we can, not only in their words, but their parents and their grandparents, because all of our Mm -hmm. stories start not with us, but with someone else. And many of our stories are about things that we did or our parents did or our grandparents did or things that were done to us or to our parents or grandparents. That's how we end up, all of us. Indigenous, non-Indigenous, that's how we end up where we ended up.
1: It's telling the whole story of somebody's life.
0: Telling the story as as completely as we can tell it. And where necessary, explaining certain things. So we tell the story essentially as chronologically in people's own words as much as we can. But sometimes we have to stop and say, you know, you might not really know about intergenerational trauma from residential school, or you might not know about the impact of adoption for Indigenous people. So we sometimes have to stop the narrative and put in some material that reflects sort of accepted academic wisdom and to just give people a context. Because judges, we can't assume judges know things. The, The Supreme Court in Gladue said judges could take what's called judicial notice of the history of Indigenous people, but you can't take notice of what you don't know. And so sometimes you have to provide that. An example, so we did a a report recently for a woman who was charged with a drug trafficking offense, a fairly low-level drug trafficking offense in the sense that she was an addict and she would sell drugs to get money to buy drugs from the Mm -hmm. people who were supplying her. And this sort of offense is one that uh, routinely lands people in jail. And based on her lifestyle and her record and everything, that was the trajectory that it was going on. Mm -hmm. And then we wrote the Gladue Report. And in the Gladue Report, all sorts of things were revealed. It was revealed that she had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which meant that her mother consumed alcohol Mm -hmm. uh, while she was pregnant and Mm -hmm. she was born with this brain damage, which Mm -hmm. made her susceptible, made her somewhat socially awkward, made her susceptible to people who were manipulating her, and, and that in fact happened to her. She was manipulated by people into doing this work. She, was, she became addicted for particular reasons that were specific to her life and her history. And by the time we had done the report, and she had, with the help of a number of people, had now left, who had moved back with her, I think adopted parents, was no longer, was in recovery in terms of her drug use, and so she was a different person. And the report talked about all those things. And so the judge was able to to say, I'm not going to send you to jail because it wouldn't make any sense, even though I would I might otherwise and have otherwise sent people to jail for this offense. Now that I know more about you, about your history, about your background, and about what you've done positively, I'm not sending you to jail. Because that's an important part of these reports is that these reports are not just listing people's deficits. I mean, it's important to understand that, but we are not, again, all of us, we are not deficits. We are not simply an accumulation of deficits. We all have strengths. We all have gifts. The role of the report is to illustrate those things for the judge so they can meaningfully consider an alternative. And, you know, these good reports,
1: uh, I think are uh, a really important example of how you can use the law in this case you know a particular uh case and the statute to make a difference in people's lives. but I know that you said to me that you believe that social change in the relationships between mm-hmm. the settler and indigenous communities is more complicated than just using the court so that's That's an important lever, but not the only one, I think, was how you put it to me, which is certainly something that I've struggled with in my own work and and how, you know, changing how people think about an issue, and in this case, you know, stereotypes that have been there for many, many years about people who are seen as others by the cellular community. So so what can ALS do about that?
0: So one of the things that's very important for us is that we are not just an organization that engages in litigation. We do engage in litigation and that's important to what for what we do. But the litigation that we engage in is based on our experience working with clients outside of representing them as lawyers. So most of our mm. staff, so we have 65 staff and five or six of us are lawyers. The rest aren't. So we learn mm. from our clients, mm. we learn from our volunteers, we learn yeah. what the issues are are, and so when we go to court and litigate, we reflect those interests and those concerns. But also, we're able to see on the ground what the impact of decisions, court decisions are or are not, and we take an active role in trying to bring those positive decisions, trying to make them real. Our experience with Gludu is an example of how it's not enough to get a court decision and sort of, and you say, oh hooray, we got the court decision, and then you move on to your next court, your your next case. You have to work to build up uh, the social capital, and you bring your people together to support what real change will look like. If we hadn't done Glodew reports, and they hadn't worked, then there's a, a good chance that the Glodew decision would have sort of withered on the vine, yeah. because people would go. Yeah. Yeah, okay, they said we're do students, but we don't know how to do it. No one told us how to do it. So it's really important to give people examples. So uh, that's what our programs try and do, is to give people examples, concrete examples about how things can change, how Indigenous organizations and people working in Indigenous organizations and Indigenous people can lead to real meaningful change in a way that the system itself can't do that. Because ultimately our goal is to see not just Indigenous concerns reflected within the dominant justice system or the Western justice system, but to really work for the revitalization of Indigenous concepts of justice, um, Indigenous ways of dispute resolution.
1: And you told me that when... You were, you know, sort of still beginning, I suppose, you know, your your professional life. That you were really struck by the contrast between Western and Indigenous theories of how we govern ourselves. With you know the Western approach, much more focused on the individual, and Indigenous on the collective. And that for you, that was a kind of very inspiring contrast and a, and a sort of you know an aha contrast, I guess. So can you tell me how you got from being that master student? who was so struck by this, to doing the work that you do now?
0: Sure. I, I think it was a couple steps back. So in the early 1980s, I had graduated from law school, was not practicing law because I was trying to do other social change-related stuff. So I was working on a conference on prison abolition, which was spearheaded by the Quaker Communities on Jails and Justice. And one of the people who was involved in organizing that was an, uh, an elder, a Ojibwe elder named Art Solomon, who uh, right. was one of the wisest people I've ever met. And yeah. I had never heard Art, and I was just mesmerized. And he talked about justice, and when he talked about justice and indigenous concepts of justice, it made a huge amount of sense to me, but it was something that it, I certainly had not learned, something didn't come up in law school. And and I found it really inspiring. And then yes. later that decade, uh, I was organizing a conference on uh, called First Nations Justice in Ontario in the 90s. So I was, again, Art was involved in that and other elders, and I was talking to them about justice issues. And at the same time, as you said, I was doing my master's uh, part-time in constitutional law. Right. And the, one of the courses I was taking was sort of on the Basis of legal theory, why do people obey laws, etc. And we were studying legal philosophers, uh, political philosophers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and more modern like John Rawls. And all of these Western philosophers who took very different perspectives on some important mm. issues, but all of them really started. If you ask them, why do you, why should we follow laws? Why should we obey decisions or follow decisions made by governments and stuff? They all started out from the perspective that it's in our individual self-interest to allow With the give up
1: some on individual yes.
0: individual yes. self to give up some of our freedom so that we ultimately get more. So it's an individual self-interest model. Uh, despite the fact there are a wide variety of perspectives, that's where it all comes from. And, and I was thinking as I was reading this material that I, as I'm, I was also talking to, to elders, I couldn't, elders wouldn't understand this at all.
1: No. The idea that, that the idea yeah. that
0: everything comes from individual self-interest, mm, the idea that mm. the individual can be, taken away from the broader community, uh, their nation, their clan, their their family, and you think of them as this autonomous person that has no relation to anybody else, that would make no sense. And so this radically different worldview in terms of how we look at justice was really brought to the fore because I was doing these two very different things. Yes. Um, and that really, uh, helped me crystallize a lot of things. I wrote my major paper for my master's on that, um, and then uh, shortly after, I had an opportunity to help uh, set up Aboriginal Legal Services, and um, and I did. And you've been there ever since. Yes. It was a one month contract, there was an ad for a one month contract in 1990.
1: And <laughs> oh, that's a great story, that's been a, a great long month. story, yes. And now I think that you are absolutely sort of indistinguishable from Aboriginal Legal Services. Jonathan, yes. thank you so much for doing this and for um, giving all of this really important insight into the work that you do, the special work that you do, thank you.
0: Okay, thanks Julie. Take care.
2: I think that's a really, really great conversation. One of my favorites this season, I think, because I learned a lot that I didn't know. Very informative. Very informative. And uh, one of the things I liked most, and I know you did too, and it does relate to kind of what we try to do at NSRLP, which is to try to go directly to our community mm. and talk to them about what they want and need and then do that. And Jonathan talked about how that's exactly what they try to do at ALS.
3: Yeah, that was that was really interesting to me. And you know, to hear him talk about the same challenge I think that we often have at NSRLP, which is there are a lot of very well-intentioned people who think that certain things might be good for self-reps but they're not necessarily. <laughs> and he is dealing with that same issue, so they go directly to the source. They talk to the elders, they talk to their volunteers, and as he said, they don't just say very interesting and then do something else, which I'm afraid somebody who's been at this as long as Jonathan and someone who's been at this as long as I have been, we have seen that happen mm-hmm. where there is a sort of fake consultation. What he was so clear about was that, yes, we take our direction from the community and that's, those are the needs that we're trying to meet and we do do what they ask us to do. And I think that we're trying to do the same thing at NSRLP. So I think we really do share some important values there.
2: Absolutely, and and, you know, kind of speaking of the practical things that they are actually doing to help the community, are Gladou reports themselves, which I found his uh, what he had to say on them very informative and I didn't quite understand what they were before. So this was really, really helpful for me to understand exactly what they are, which is that they basically tell the story of somebody's life and they tell the entire story. And I love that part of that is going and talking to as many people as possible in that person's life Mm -hmm. and getting a sense for who this person is on multiple levels and in all facets of their life. And then that should inform um, how the justice process proceeds. I, I think it's just such a, a more holistic, uh, wonderful way to approach justice.
3: And, and it also makes common sense. I mean, yes. One of the things that he pointed out, I thought um, very appropriately, is that any kind of restorative justice process, which is this, is this is a type of restorative justice process, isn't just saying, can we come up with enough reasons not to send somebody to prison? Mm. But can we also look at what they contribute currently within their community? And within their family, that would mean incarcerating them would be, you know, a loss to their family yeah. and to that community. And certainly, uh, when I have uh, done work in the past with judges up north who work in sentencing circles, it's a very similar process for Indigenous communities there. And they are looking at what does this person currently bring to their family, to their community that will be lost if they're put in prison. So it's not just about. You know, can we make enough reasons for them to have justifications or explanations in some way for what they've done? But it's also about recognizing people's positive contribution Mm -hmm. and keeping in mind that that should, if possible, be continued and supported.
2: And that really kind of ties into what you and Jonathan talked about towards the end of your conversation, which was his uh, kind of aha moment early in his career, realizing that while the kind of colonial white justice system is very much all centered on and the individual, individual yeah. um, that one of the reasons that it just does not work very well in many cases for uh, aboriginal communities is because their focus is much more on the collective and so it doesn't make any sense to them to just take somebody out of the context of their community and their family and forward-thinking ways of doing justice like this that are meant to specifically address the problems that a certain community uh, faces in in engaging with the justice system end up strengthening the justice system for everybody, no matter what their background, that it makes more sense to look at that person as part of the community and how removing them from the community might hurt not just them, but the community. Yeah.
3: And, you know, it's it's important to note that Section 718 of the Criminal Code, which is the relevant section here, it talks about looking at alternatives to incarceration, especially for aboriginal offenders, but not just for aboriginal offenders. And, you know, there was really, I thought, an echo here of that earlier conversation that we had this season with uh, Val Wabush and Bev Jacobs that, it's not just when we think about the relationship between the the justice system and indigenous people it's not just about being more respectful of aboriginal traditions and being more knowing of the context of indigenous lives it's actually also about perhaps taking some of those traditions and implanting and embedding them within our own mm. within our own system and a lot of the work that's been done in canada over the past 20 25 years on restorative justice has really flourished in indigenous communities, but it's also flourished in inner cities and in communities where there are not indigenous people, because the overall approach is to try to find a way to develop a more humane system Mm. of punishment Mm. that enables people to, yes, you know, acknowledge what they've done, but also keeps them as a functional member of the community.
4: In other news, first up in other news, the University of Windsor Faculty of Law is co-hosting the World Indigenous Law Conference from November 18th through November 21st. The purpose of the World Indigenous Law Conference is to bring together lawyers, judges, academics, knowledge keepers, policy experts, community leadership, community advocates, students, and all interested parties to embark on and share in conversation and discourse about the implementation of Indigenous law into Western contemporary legal systems, and highlighting Indigenous laws that already exist in Indigenous communities and nations. A range of topics are being covered, and we've provided links to the conference website and the conference program to showcase the various ideas being discussed. Our second news story is about a recent decision from the Supreme Court of Canada that was decided on Friday, November 16th. The case is Mizrani v. Industrial Alliance and Financial Services Incorporated and the Minister of National Revenue. The case is primarily about language rights. The court said that language rights were so important that there would usually have to be a new hearing when they were violated, even if the violation didn't affect the result. In this case, the violations had a clear effect on the proceedings and the decision, so the court ordered a new hearing. The Supreme Court stated that a judge has to make sure people's language rights are protected, especially people coming to court without lawyers, like Mr. Mazrani. In paragraph 39, the Supreme Court referred to the previous Supreme Court decision of Pentea v. Johns, in which the NSRLP had intervenor status, and the Supreme Court also referenced the endorsement of the statement of principles on self-represented litigants. Quoting from the decision, quote, We are sensitive to the fact that the rise in the number of parties who appear in court without counsel to represent them can cause additional problems for judges when it comes to implementing the protection of language rights. Judges must sometimes adapt the procedure to account for the fact that such individuals are unfamiliar with the justice system in order, for example, to ensure that proceedings are conducted efficiently and to preclude the use of purely tactical maneuvers by more experienced adverse parties." Find links on our website to a news article on the subject, the full text of the Supreme Court decision on Canley, and the Supreme Court's case-in-brief summary. Lastly, in case you missed it, the NSRLP published a new blog post this past week, which was written by a self-rep who prefers to remain anonymous. The blog post is titled The Cost of Self-Representation, and describes the circumstances that too many SRLs face. This particular story is one involving family law, specifically a mutually agreed upon divorce. What should have been straightforward, considering the amicable nature on both sides, ended up causing undue frustration, both for the drafting of a separation agreement that cost $10,000, and the process of self-representing for the divorce. This blog post is worth a look. That's it for this week of jumping off the ivory tower. Join us next week for some thoughts on the summer job recruitment process for second year law students, commonly referred to as the OCI process.